season of MFA Writers. I'm so glad to have you here, and I'm super excited to kick off this season with a special faculty episode with the one and only Ross Gay. As you all know, Ross is an amazing poet and essayist, and he's got a new essay collection coming out September 19th, 2023, called The Book of More Delights. So, I encourage you all to go to rossgay.net and order a copy right after you finish listening to this episode. Before we get to the conversation, I want to remind you all that you can find MFA Writers on Instagram and Twitter, as well as mfawriters.com. We love to hear from listeners, so feel free to shoot us a direct message on one of those platforms or an email at mfawriterspodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a minute to rate or review the show, the best place to do that is on Apple Podcasts. Doing so will help boost our podcast as we try to boost these amazing writers. Also, if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, you can apply at mfawriters.com. On that same website, you can also click the support button to support us financially, if it's within your means. Or you can do so by going directly to buymeacoffee.com slash mfawriters. Finally, as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to MFA Writers, the podcast where we talk to creative writing MFA students about their program, their process, and a piece they're working on. I'm your host, Jared McCormick. Today, we've got a special faculty episode with Ross Gay, a professor in the MFA program at Indiana University, Bloomington. Ross is the author of four books of poetry, Against Which, Bringing the Shovel Down, Beholding, which was the winner of the Pen American Literary Gene Stein Award, and Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude, winner of the 2015 National Book Critics Circle Award, and the 2016 Kingsley Tufts Poetry Award. In addition to his poetry, Ross has three collections of essays. The Book of Delights was released in 2019 and was a New York Times bestseller. Inciting Joy was released in 2022, and his newest collection, The Book of More Delights, will be available in September 2023. Today, Ross is going to read a short essay from this forthcoming collection. Yeah, so hey, it's good to be with you. Thanks for having me. And this essay is um, this is from this new book called The Book of More Delights. <laughs> I'm, I'm a... I'm a I have to argue a little bit with that title every single time because <laughs> we had to tussle about that title and it wasn't the one I wanted, but I kind of, it's funny. I get to make jokes about it every single time I say it. So <laughs> I'm glad about that. <laughs> anyway, this is called How Literature Saved My Life. Shortly before dawn, I slid out of bed and crept to the other room to reread or re-reread David Shields' book, How Literature Saved My Life, which I first read in 2013 staying the year with Stephanie and her family back in Frenchtown, New Jersey. At the time I was working on, or trying to anyway, a serious, historical, journalistic, and experty book. I was jotting down facts and figures, trying to mortar the knowledge I was acquiring into an unbreachable argument, a thesis, in fact, that would, in addition to money and prizes and stuff, no joke, get me invited on the shows as an expert. And you won't believe this, I was not enjoying myself. Around this time, I was browsing a bookstore. By the way, among my favorite activities, wandering through other people's minds, especially if it's a bookshop whose curation I love, 
where it's wandering through the writer's and bookseller's minds, a kind of polyamorous nerdiness. And I stumbled upon Shields's book, outward facing and accompanied by a handwritten love note from one of the booksellers. As I made my way through it, in addition to the short entries, the humor, the digressions and associations, I noticed that though it is taught with an almost athletic readerliness, dude reads everything and clearly knows a ton, the book seems more interested in in expertise than expertise. For the expert of the expertly inexpert, the Michael Jordan or the Roger Federer of it, see Jeff Dyer. Or maybe a better way to say it about Shields' book, it is very curious. In fact, maybe you'd call it a book of curiosity about his curiosity, about his almost doppelganger, the writer Ben Lerner, about his growing up an athlete and a nerd, about his speech impediment, about love and sex and relationships, about writing and writers and books, all of which points toward my favorite curiosity of all, why we are who we are, which, at least if we go hard, by which I really mean if we try to be honest, is complicated and probably a little bit destabilizing. For being curious about oneself, just as being curious about someone else, which means trying to know oneself, requires as well, and crucially, that we be willing to unknow ourselves. T-shirt, unknow thyself. Which always seems to me, but maybe a little extra done in public, or in the kind of public a book might be, rough. In no small part because we are most of us anyway, many, many things, including, and this the honest curiosity might reveal, unadmirable, by which I more maybe mean broken, unheroically, unovercomingly so. Though not only broken, for the unknowing of oneself, also known as wondering about oneself, in the mind the page sometimes makes, is also like walking through a city you do not quite know, following a scent or a sound or a group of people or traveling through an alley that bends toward what might be, well, who knows? Erotic is the word I don't think Christopher Alexander and them use in the book A Pattern Language, but they might as well have. Also known as the titillating unknown, which, who knew, is right here. I'm pointing at my heart. Shield seems to know this, which is why, too, how literature saved my life, almost exudes self-pleasure. The wondering, the wandering around inside oneself is not a little bit auto-erotic. Or let's just say fun, so the children can stay in the room. This was a book that seemed, seems like it might have been fun to write. Which was not yet quite an idea in my head. Duty, obligation, calling, vocation, burden, slog, miserable, and sometimes though when I said this last one out of my mouth in front of a class I was assisting him in teaching, the poet Alan Shapiro kindly disabused me of the notion by asking me if I'd ever been waterboarded. Torture. But fun? Writing fun? And this is how how literature saved my life, saved my life. My writing life, anyway. By showing me I might enjoy this work, even when, as I sometimes find myself while doing it, this unknowing myself, shedding actual tears out of my very eyes. Ross, that was awesome. Thank you so much, man, for sharing that with us and for being here. Welcome. You're welcome.
Well, I guess we have to start with the title now, The Book of More Delights. I guess this is what happens when <laughs> you release a book called The Book of Delights and it's super successful, yeah. right? People yeah, totally. want you to hold on to that title. That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because I had the idea of, you know, the, the way that I'm thinking about it, um, and this, this will make sense probably to certain audiences and maybe less sense to other audiences. Out of a, you know, I kind of like the idea like, in the kind of, I don't know, like a, say a poetic tradition of people writing sort of serial projects. So like books that just kind of go on, you know, and I love, uh, like Ann Waldman writes poems that seem to go on or um, Nate Mackey, the poet Nate, and, and novelist, et cetera, Nate Mackey. I'm into, I'm into that idea. And I kind of like the idea of the delights as a thing that like, oh yeah, I can kind of just do this over years and see how it, if I keep certain sort of formal elements, but for the most right. part, change these other things, see what, see what happens. So anyway. Well, speaking about returning to the book of delights and returning to that uh, format again, I mean, one of the things that really resonated with the original book was this idea that like actively thinking and writing about delightful moments in your day-to-day life made you notice more delight in the world. And I was curious if that was one of the reasons why you wanted to return to this book and like write another one just to kind of continue building that muscle. Yeah, for sure. And I wanted to kind of, um, you know, I wanted to do all the things that like, I wanted to see what it was like five years when I'm five years older, when there's sort of different things happening in the world, when X, Y, and Z, but that's very much also part of the thing, like part of the project itself, which I call a practice, you know, I call it a practice. Um, when I realized I started calling it a practice, I was calling it a practice for a reason, because I think exactly what you're saying. Like I noticed that in the process of doing the practice, I do find myself more able to sort of witness and articulate and share is actually the big deal and share mm-hmm. um, what it is that, that I find delightful, which is not just like, Oh yeah, that's such a pretty you know thing, sure. it, which is cool. But it's like, it's also like in, in that big cosmos of things, it's often stuff like, Oh yeah, that's, that's someone helping someone, you know, yeah. with their laundry right. or that's someone. And I feel like that as a kind of, there feels to me, I was just doing this thing earlier today and I was like trying to talk in a shortly, briefly about the book. And I was realizing like, of course, there's a kind of political, um, and I, and I don't know that I mean political exactly. I, there's some aspect of political, but like social or community or something, understanding of the book. Like the book mm-hmm. understands that there is this thing that it does not happen without each other, you know? Yeah. Like the kind of witnessing of, of delight is one thing, but there's something obviously in the project of the book that wants to be like witness and share, you know, witness and share. And and the kind of evidence that that, that is a, I mean, a lot of people in the last few months when I've been reading have been like, yo, you know, we read the book of delights, me and my friends, and we all have now a delight practice. I mean, I can't tell you how many people have said that. And, you know, and I, like I, I talk about this in the introduction, I always try to remember like, yeah, it's because the delights are given to me. I write them down and, I, and then I give them to you. Then you all write them down and then you give them to someone else, maybe each other. So there is this way that inside of the practice is also this sense of like this practice of receipt of gifts. And the receipt of the gifts is, is really made, really happens when you kind of share the gift. You know what I mean? Yeah. I Something like know, that. Like- That's a lot of words. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I had like some pretty complicated feelings. I remember when I first read it, like you pick up the book, I'd heard things about it, you know, and like, okay, like these are small essays about delightful things in the world. Sounds, sounds delightful. Right. But I, but I remember reading it 
the first time and having like kind of a com- confusing emotional response to it where at times I felt kind of sad reading it. Yeah, so I was yeah. trying to figure out like why I was feeling that way. And I decided it was actually like a kind of grief. Like yeah. I was kind of like mourning those moments in mm. earlier in my life when I like hadn't been witnessing beauty because mm. of whatever in my life that was like not allowing me to. Yeah. Right. This book for me, it like kind of snapped me out of my routine in a way, you know, and and helped me like see those things again, which I don't know. Is that is that what good writing does? Right. It's like snaps us out of our routines and helps us see the world again. Oh, I think I mean, for me, I definitely like that. Like when I'm a. Uh... Well, for one, I want to come back to that question first about like the grief of it. It's interesting. You know, I have a kind of complicated relationship with this book. And in part, I have a complicated relationship because people sometimes approach it as um, like the word I hear used often is optimistic. Mm. And to me, there doesn't feel like there's anything actually optimistic about the book. The book feels completely engaged with the kind of um, the shitstorm. You know, yeah. it's like it's utterly attentive to, you know, to the, sh- <laughs> to the shit storm. <laughs> and, and it's sort of like, but the shit storm is not the only thing, you know, yeah. or in the midst of the shit storm or the shit storm is just part of like, you know, all these other things, you know, there's the shit totally. storm and then there's like the flower storm and then there's like the, <laughs> the handshake storm and all this shit. And it's sort of like, but so that idea of optimism or like, like looking on the bright side of things, I feel like, no, no, no. The part of that's interesting, though it's called the Book of Delights, it's 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 really the book of attempting to look at everything. Yeah. Just look at everything. And partly I wonder too if like that grief thing is about um when we are capable or practicing a kind of like close attention or or even witnessing someone else's close attention, if that sort of just actually makes room for grief. You know, mm. that makes room for a kind of abundance of an abundance of feelings, you know, grief, yeah. which is actually grief is evidence of connection in a way to me, the, the, the delight thing is like, oh yeah, delight is like, um, it's like the pleasant evidence of connection. Like a hummingbird flies right by you. You feel, uh, if you have that feeling, you feel like, whoa, that's beautiful. And it's not like you feel it's beautiful because you're disconnected. You feel beautiful because it's like, oh, I saw that or like, oh, that creature is inhabiting the world with me or, oh, maybe I'm connected in some way to that creature or, oh, that was like a gift. And grief is also, you know, you don't feel grief because you, because you don't feel connected to things. You feel Mm -hmm. grief because there's connection. Right. And like, I feel like for a lot of people, we get in this mindset where like being happy means not being sad, where they're actually like the same spectrum, right? Yes. Like you can't have one without the other. Yeah. Um, yeah. Talking about the shit storm we're all living in. I mean, like, I feel like in a lot of ways, just the sheer amount of shit that we are like faced with yeah. all the time these days, it seems like can kind of numb you to a lot of those feelings where you're just trying to like, if I can just feel kind of happy today, then it's a yeah. good day. Right. Yeah. Partially this book for me was like, okay, yeah, that's it's nice to feel happy, but also there are all these other complicated feelings that if you get in touch with them, you might find like a truer sense of happiness. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Like I do kind of feel like connection is kind of the big feeling. The yeah. you know, the the big study. Like the book, the last book, Inciting Joy that I wrote, it's really about these sort of sites of, you know, what I call entanglement, you know, or how I think of as entanglement. Um 
which which is a word that I kind of learned from this writer named Anna Singh, uh, who has a book called Mushroom at the End of the World, which is amazing book. And and connection is many things, you know, connection, you know, it's sort of like connection is also going to make you cry, mm. you know, which is, it's interesting, you know, we've been watching <laughs> a couple of episodes of this show called uh, Couples Therapy, but um, there's this very interesting thing where, and it's interesting that the people, these, these people, they take footage of them in therapy and then they take footage of them like in their houses or at home or something. And very often people are on their phones. They're, they're almost always on devices. And there is, I remember someone saying something about, I can't remember exactly how they put it, but like there is the kind of, there's a danger in connection, you know, there's a danger and the danger is like of being moved. The danger is of being like a, you know, the, the amazing thing is that you can feel really elated or like whatever. And the, and the danger is that you might feel kind of heartbroken. Um, and so there's all of this kind of opportunity to be like, ah, fuck all that. I can just be mm-hmm. on my phone. Like, yeah. In a way, like more than ever, to really right. be sort of alienated from the possibility of a certain kind of connection, I think. So what's the remedy of that? Because, I mean, we're not getting rid of our phones, right? I mean, technology is going nowhere, right? So I know. Like- I know. I know. I, I don't, I, it's a really great question, man. I don't know. Do you? Do you feel like there's remedies for that i mean i like to spend time outside with my phone not in my pocket and this is a small thing right it's a small thing to just like be like i'm gonna go outside for a walk and i'm not gonna bring my phone with me and i'm going to say hi to everyone that i see yeah and then sometimes get into like little conversations with people i mean i used to do that all the time ross i used to like just have these little conversations with people all the time and now it's so much more difficult to do that because people have, you know, AirPods in, they got their phone in their hand, right? It's, it's just yeah. so much more difficult. So I guess I just try to like create a little bit more space yeah. in my own yeah. life because I am absolutely guilty of doing the same thing. I spend way too much time with earbuds in my ears and a phone in my hand, which makes these connections difficult. So I, I'm trying to like put in a little bit more effort and create a little bit more space so that hopefully I can have some of those miniature connections which yeah, yeah, it's not it's not altruistic. Like it mm-hmm. improves my day, right? I totally. mean, it gives totally. me something to have those conversations. Absolutely. About. Sometimes I like to ask directions. I can't keep directions in my head, but I like to ask yeah. directions yeah. just for that, just for that reason. Because ninety nine percent of the time, people are really excited to give you. You know, yeah. sometimes they don't even quite know the directions they want to give you. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's like a you know evidence of like this kind of you know decentness decency in in people and in this kind of connection yeah but i feel like um i also periodically like i've heard from booksellers that younger people like um people who really grew up with cell phones like people in their 20s are very excited about independent bookstores like going to little bookstores they want books in their hands and i've had a couple of booksellers tell me that it's because they're so kind of like they want something else you know, they want a kind of material connection to stuff. And I don't know, that that makes me feel glad. Yeah, I teach at the college level. I got a bunch of Gen Z kids who are in my class. They're great kids. I mean, and they're yeah. thinking about the world in a way that I did not think of when I was that age, right? Yeah. So um, I do think there's been this kind of maybe slight 
movement away from some of this stuff. Um, yeah. And I think it's good. Like, I mean, I think back when I was like, I spent a lot of time abroad. So I was traveling a lot um, in my 20s for like eight or nine years I was abroad. And one of the things that that taught me is how much I need other people. Because when you're yeah. abroad in a country where you don't speak yeah. the language very well, yeah. I didn't have a smartphone that worked on, you know, like their networks. You know, yeah. I had a map <laughs> and I depended on people so much. I depended yes. on the kindness of other people so much. Yeah. And that is a magical thing. Like needing totally. other people's help is a beautiful thing. And yeah. I feel like the phone that like provides so many simple answers makes that more difficult. It makes it harder to like reach out to people and ask for help, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That feels like one of the sorrows of a certain kind of life, which is to do our best, which, which imagines that that has a fantasy of needlessness. And the fan, the fantasy Mm -hmm. is that if we could just need nothing, no one and nothing, then we will be, we will have made it. That will be success. And the fact of the matter is that that's actually death, you know? When you need nothing, then you then you're dead, you know, because you never get out and need anything. But that that terrible fantasy of you know, and it can be like on the phones, or it can be like, you know, the kind of moats around where we live, or the or the million ways that we kind of separate ourselves from one another, um, which right. can feel very seductive if you're at all inclined to be like that, if you want to leave. But yeah, man, it's a it's a it's a it's not good. <laughs> it's not good. Well, well, I don't know about you, but I feel pretty old in this moment right now that we spent, <laughs> <laughs> we spent like the last ten minutes like talking about how phones are bad for us. But I know, you know it I is know. what it is. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, I do want to talk a little bit about like the privilege of delight. Yeah, because you you touch on this at times in the book, like that early essay on inefficiency. Any yeah. you talk about how that's a delight your parents mostly didn't get to enjoy because they were hustling to stay afloat financially and otherwise. Right. So the reality is that it can be hard to see the beauty in life when you're struggling to survive, be it because of economics or discrimination based on the color of your skin, who you love, how you identify yourself. So I'm curious how much that was on your mind as you were writing some of these. Yeah. You know, it's kind of quite a bit on my mind and it's, and partly I was thinking of, it was in my, on my mind in part because I was hanging out with my mom quite a bit while I was writing them. And I was like, man, my mom is really delighted these days. Like my mom is someone who says things like, oh boy, you know, or, or I don't know if she says gee whiz, but she says things like that. Yeah. <laughs> She's an 82 year old person from, you know, upper Northern Minnesota. And she, and she talks like it. And um, <laughs> I, I was like, oh man, you are not the person I grew up with, you know? Mm. And it's sort of like, you know, my dad died and left her very comfortable, you know, like he had a good life insurance and they were hustling for all of my childhood. Um, they were really very, very, you know, like I laughed or I asked her, I was like, did you guys ever have like more than a month's saving in the bank? And she like laughed, you know? Mm, right. Um, so they were, they were, you know, hustling like most people. They were just like on the edge. And, um, I mean, I definitely remember her having nice times, absolutely. But but she is a very different person, you know, because there is an element, there's just a bunch of stuff that is no longer, um, you know, troubling her in a way. And at the same time, isn't it interesting that 
so often people with tons of uh, shit, <laughs> money, <laughs> yeah. stuff, etc., are the most miserable motherfuckers in the world. <laughs> Isn't it interesting? The most undelighted. And, and it seems to me that there's some kind of thing about this, what we were talking about, like, you know, the, you know, among a certain kind of elite, there's the aspiration toward needlessness. Yeah. And to right. be without need means also probably to be without the opportunity to be delighted by the benevolence of your connections. Yeah. You know, like if you, if you, you don't have to ask for directions, you don't even have to ask for, you don't have to drive yourself anywhere. You don't have to do anything, you know? Well, what then do you have the sort of, what do you have to be grateful for? You know, and in a way, it almost probably takes more of a kind of discipline or effort to maintain a kind of like a practice of gratitude when you imagine yourself to be the the kind of origin of all of, you know, the origin of everything that like, you know, of all your shit, you know, of all your, of your life, the origin of your life, you know? Right. Um, so it feels like a complicated an absolutely complicated thing. And it's also, I think in part, why delight as a, as a kind of category of feeling is interesting to me, but joy is a more interesting feeling, you know, joy is a, joy to me does not exist without sorrow, does not exist without pain, does not exist without whatever you call it, struggle. Um, and it is it is absolutely the evidence of the connection that emerges in the in the in the sort of common midst of struggle, um, and I feel like you know like without getting too like um, whatever you call it taxonomical, I feel like <laughs> like delight and joy kind of circle each other like overlap yeah. in some ways, um, but in a way it feels like joy is the more grave is actually the emotion that I often think I, the word I often think I think it's a grave emotion. You know, which is why joy shows up at funerals as much as it does at births, you know, et cetera. But I don't know if I answered your question. No, well, I think answering yeah. the question, I don't yeah, know. Yeah. We're talking about it, right? Yeah, yeah we're <laughs> I'm not sure. It. I'm not sure there is an answer to this yeah. question, but yeah. like, I, I'm with you that like, if there is an answer, I don't think it is to just have a bunch of money, right? right. And right. like, therefore, I can feel joy because I don't have to worry about money. It's to me, it's more about. How do we create a community in which we all feel safe, right? Yeah, like, I don't yeah. need to have a bunch. I just need to know right. that I'm not going to die if I yeah. like, yeah, totally. if I don't make my next paycheck, right? Totally. Yeah. Or if I go outside and tell people like, "This is who I love," or "This is yeah. how I feel about myself," you know, like, yeah, it's going to be okay. Yeah, totally. Um, I um, that's one of the things that I think is very important. There's something afoot in this practice and this sort of delight thing. Like I said, like it, there is something interesting about that. There's there is this inclination to share. You know, there is this sort of. It feels like when we articulate what we love, and I think there is a difference between like what we love and what we like are fighting against. You know, like there's some kind of thing. You know, I'm not, and I feel like when we articulate what we love and share that, there is in fact a sort of there, it feels to me that there is some kind of like understanding of like one abundance or like enoughness or um, it's also like a kind of care. It feels like a kind of care in a certain kind of way. Um, but it also fundamentally is about sharing. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and it's sort of like the ground of it is like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What if we share? What if we share, you know? And, and, and you know, to me, like, what, what if you share what you love, you know? Which mm-hmm. to me includes all the things you just said, you know? I think it'd be awesome if everyone, you know, um, had all the health care they needed. Right. I think it'd be awesome if everyone could like, you know, and I don't care. I don't care who they are. Yeah. I don't care what they fucking think about me either. <laughs> or I don't care what they think. I still want them to be able to go to the fucking dentist. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. This is something that like, I think writing has taught me and might be like connected to what we're talking about. And that's yeah. like this idea of radical empathy, which yeah. I mean, you talked about growing up how you dealt with like some toxic ideas of masculinity, like that yeah. idea of like being an island, like not needing anyone, that kind of thing. Yeah. I had the same thing growing up in like small town, rural Missouri. And like there were adults in my life who modeled destructive ideas of masculinity, what it meant to be a man. And although my impulse at times is to write stories about these people in a way that looks down on them, that points my finger and I'm like, you know, like we are as a society – <laughs> the way we are because of you, shame on you. Like, yeah, like totally. those those stories don't work, right? right like what right. I'm what I'm drawn to are the stories that try to like understand those people and what made them have that worldview yeah. and like try to love them as best I yeah. can, right? Yeah. Like that kind of radical empathy for people who on the face don't seem like they deserve it. Yeah. Um in part because we're always those people. We're always gonna be those people too. Like, you know, like, I don't know about you, but I've been that person. <laughs> yeah. I've been that person that someone could catch catch a thing that I did or a way that I thought or something and be like, you don't, you don't deserve oh, yeah. my, right. like, why, why would I ever consider anything you ever said again? Yeah. And, uh, I mean, and so again, it's like, that's not a kind of altruism. That's a kind of yeah. like, man, I hope. I ho- also hope that I'm afforded some great grace. Yeah, right. Of this course. Thing, you know what I mean? Um, but, but I feel like that's, I feel like that's a, it's a challenging thing. It's a really challenging thing. And I actually feel like it's a, I feel like, uh, it's a moment like that in our kind of, um, literary slash general culture where that like sort of, you know, we, we want, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a symptom of a kind of simplified, um, culture an immature culture, I would say that wants to, wants to uh, like simplify and reduce everything and everyone to an instance or yeah. an event or a something or other. And it's just like, um, again, to come back to like myself, like I know that I am a creature and I'm perpetually changing. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying growing too, like I'm, I'm, I'm changing, you know, yeah. and which makes me know, it's kind of empathy makes me know that everyone else is changing. You know, mm. I don't know what, what we're all changing into, but I can trust that we're all changing. And I feel like that is interesting. How people change is interesting. Not that I know how they should change, but, but that, Oh, I wonder what is going to happen with them and me. Given yeah. that like several times, uh, you know, a month I'm like, wow, that's, that's intent. That's something else. I really didn't realize that I've been thinking that this whole time. Yeah. You know? Like when you were talking about like, like growing up, like these ideas of, you know, 
whatever you call them, like sort of ideas about masculinity and stuff. Yeah. You know, like that shit is powerful. It is deeply powerful the ways that we we enact that stuff without having a fucking clue. Yeah. That we're doing it, you know, and it's and to see it and be like, oh shit, <laughs> that. Yeah. Whoa. Well, I mean, speaking about like the cultural moment, it seems like to me at times like we're rushing to close off that opportunity for change. Right. Yes. It's totally. like, oh no, I know who you are. You're done. You're totally. out of my life. Right. Totally. It makes sense. You know, we we incarcerate more people uh, than any other country on the planet. Right. Right. It makes sense that 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 cultural impulse, even when it um, even when it seems to be something else, is actually a cultural impulse. So, how do we create more space for that? I don't know. I don't know. I do think about like talking about change and and yeah. being witness to each other's change. You know, mm-hmm. um, that feels to me like a good a good practice that that I feel like I've learned from other people. Mm-hmm. You know, like often like older people, you know, can be like, oh, yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing, you know, like, oh, yeah, stuff's going to change. Um, but, but yeah, I do feel like it's, you know, we all had the experience of like having, having been, you know, someone else sort of giving us a chance or sort of like yeah. wondering, you know, wondering, just wondering about each other. I, maybe that's the thing, like. You know, partly there's there's such a kind of fixation on like knowing everything, yeah. And if you're right. kind of like, well, well, what what is that? What's going on there? Well, but I'm talking too much. What about you? What do you think? No, I think that that makes total sense to me. Like developing a bigger sense of curiosity about people, and yeah, and like I mean that that is what I write fiction. I write short stories. I mean that's what draws me to short stories. It's right. like right. I'm like, okay, here's this person who just seems like they see the world completely different from the way yeah. I do. Let's try to figure that out. Like, and, and yeah. writing the words down, like I can turn a problem over in my head over and over again. Yeah. And I, I can't figure it out in the same way I can when I put words on the page. So yeah. it's a, it's like another tool to try to like understand, okay, like how are people the way they are? And also how did I become the way yeah, I yeah, became? Yeah. Right. Because yeah. I look, I look at that community that I came from. It's a great community full of, really beautiful people, but also like every community, some toxic ideas in there too. Right. And, you know, I just, I I think about like all the different paths I could have taken, but this is the one I'm on. And like, it's interesting, interesting to explore what factors would have caused me to be someone else. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And it, yeah, it feels so, to me, it feels refreshing to be in the midst of people like you who um, like I try to be, to be like, oh yeah, like oh yeah, I know you, <laughs> you know, um, to myself as well. Sometimes that's the other yeah. thing, though. Again, yeah. like again, to be like, oh yeah, man, I know, I know you, I know, yeah, <laughs> I, I know yeah. that. But I mean, I do feel like teaching is like a really good practice ground for that, absolutely, you know? because that's a place where you. I mean, the project is to sort of like, as I think of it, is to be witness to each other's, to be gentle and loving witness to each other's changing, you know? And um, that feels like the main, not like toward any goal, you know, like other than maybe sometimes writing better sentences or something, you know? (laughs) But toward 
I mean, the practice of gentle witness is itself the kind of, uh, the outcome. Yeah. Well, let's talk about teaching a little bit as much fun as I'm having just like (laughs) (laughs) circling these subjects with you. This is a podcast that's mostly for people who are applying to MFA programs or are like currently in MFA programs. A lot of emerging writers listen to this podcast. As I mentioned earlier, you teach in the MFA program at Indiana University Bloomington. You joined the faculty there in 2007. Before that, you got a BA from Lafayette College in 96, an MFA from Sarah Lawrence in 98, and followed that up with a PhD from Temple in 2006. So you've been in creative writing classrooms for a long time, my friend. For like 30 years. So what do you remember? (laughs) (laughs) So what do you remember from your time as a creative writing student? And in what Mm. ways do you think the creative writing classroom and the MFA experience has changed since then? Oh yeah, good question. I feel like um, you know, when I was when I was nineteen or twenty or whatever, and taking my first creative writing classes from an amazing writer and teacher named Lee Upton, um, she she was a very generous. Her her main, if I recall, um, I think her main thing was like she was very encouraging. You know, mm-hmm. it's funny. Like the older I get, the more I feel like I'm I'm getting more like her, like, just like, just do more. Good job. Do more. Um, then I went to grad school and, and then I had like kind of a typical workshop experience for the most part, um, with again, like really amazing writers, but who the, the job of the class to some extent, you know, it was more like a critique based thing. And the job of the class was to kind of fix your poems, you know? Yeah. I had one teacher, Gerald Stern, who, um, he was right at the end of his writing career and he seemed just not to be very interested in that. He didn't grow up in that kind of scene. He didn't go to an MFA. He was a little kind of just right. He was, he didn't go to an MFA program. He died mm-hmm. recently. He's like 97. And his relationship to stuff was just like, you know, I think probably was mostly like you share work with friends or you, I mean, he taught his whole life. Um, he taught many, many years, but, but you could tell he wasn't interested in like fixing people's poems. I wonder if he ever was, but he was more like kind of wanted to hear him, you know, and then he kind of wanted to be like, yeah, that was pretty good. <laughs> he didn't want to, he didn't want to be like, you know, that line, if you just change the syntax and that line yeah. and then did a little, it just wasn't interesting to him. And, and I spent years where that was exactly what I wanted to do was just to like fix poems. And I felt it took a kind of pride in being able to fix people's poems. And then I started to feel like that's just like, so boring to me. <laughs> it's also so boring because it feels like every, I'm just laying my kind of view upon what a poem ought to be on everyone, of sure. what a poem ought to be on everyone. And I just, eventually I started to realize like, oh, that means all, that means it's just going to be a lot of, in a way I'm advocating for poems to all be alike, to yeah, all have right. the same kind of parameters. And, you know, with the help of like good friends and other good books and, stuff i just got to be like uh. so now my class anyway it's just kind of like you know they're mostly sort of generative things or experiments i think of them as experimental like laboratories or something where we just write kind of whatever we want to write we might have sort of common um exercises and stuff and i do understand that old old workshop model is is being questioned and more right. people are doing other stuff um which seems makes sense. It makes yeah. sense. You mean like trying to like unsilence the writer, bring them in, make it more of like a conversation, that kind of thing. Yeah, 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 totally. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, like when I was in grad school, you couldn't say anything. You had to be totally yeah. quiet. <laughs> some some workshops are still like that, man. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I remember being in a workshop like that, and then someone be like, "Okay, so we just talked for thirty minutes, and you all were mis." I just couldn't tell you, but I it was a I, it was a typo. Yeah. So you spent twenty minutes talking about this fucking typo. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, man, I saw enough of that where I was like, man, this is just like not useful. Yeah. Well, another part of MFA programs or a way in which MFA programs, at least in the past, have gotten a bad rap is that, you know, people have talked about them as really kind of cutthroat spaces, like competitive spaces. That's not at all how my experience was in the MFA. But when I when I started this podcast, I talked to a lot of MFA students. I fully expected to hear a lot of people talking about that. Yeah, that hasn't been the case. Like mo- most yeah. people talk about really supportive environments. So I'm hopeful that that's something that's changed. Yeah. And I'm curious to hear you talk about how important you think it is to foster an environment of collaboration and teamwork instead of competitiveness. I think it's hugely important. And I think it's, it's funny because school itself is meant to foster a, an environment of cutthroat competition. Mm. I think that's really the objective of school school, it's sort of, I mean, we could have a long, long conversation. I think the sort of belief in a hierarchy is, is, and the adherence to it and the sort of practices of it Mm -hmm. seem to be a thing. And grades are the evidence of that. Right. You know, and grades sort of imply a, like a, a lack of some sort. There's not enough. So only, and you know, it's only a certain amount of people get this and and it's all built into the whole shit stuff, shit show. Mm -hmm. Um, So in order to like practice something other than that, you have to be very conscientious about it. You know, you have to be like, okay, we're not going to be doing school inside of school. We're going to be doing, Mm -hmm. or we're going to be doing school inside of the university. Or we're going to be doing, you know, or study as like Fred Moten and them call it, you know, inside of the university, which is not interested in study. It's interested in a sort of like accumulation or competition or obedience or whatever the things are. And collaboration, like, Deep collaboration, not collaboration to like, (laughs) again, not a kind of like pushing out everything else kind of collaboration, but a kind of collaboration where it's like people get to kind of wander around together, like do shit and recognize our kind of interdependence in the making of stuff too. That feels totally vital, you know, and I feel like there's probably lots of ways to do it. And there are lots of ways that people are doing it. And like you said, I think it absolutely will foster more of that thing of like, oh, you know, the feeling that I, when I would have classes and something would happen cool with someone, maybe someone writes a beautiful poem that everyone is like, holy shit, that's wild. That's so beautiful. And that the feeling of the class or my feeling, I could say at least, was like, holy shit, we just made that thing. Yeah. You know, or someone like just got some prize or some grant or fellowship and you're like, woo, we did it. We did it. That feeling, you know. Um, and it's funny, you know, it's like, there's, there's kind of, uh, I've been in this, I've taught at this place for 17, 16 years or something now, a while, long enough to know that that kind of ebbs and flows just also in terms of like, you know, what's going on. Some crews are more like all about pumping each other's up and some crews are a little bit more like quiet and solitary or whatever. There's a million ways that it works, but I do feel like if there's any way that we as the faculty or whatever are able to sort of encourage really what you say, like a kind of deep collaborative spirit, then that, that really does feel like it can do a lot. 
So how do you try to do that in your classroom? Like, are you like when students first come in at the beginning of the semester, are you trying to like destabilize their understanding of what the classroom and what school oh, is yeah, like right oh, off yeah. the bat? And then yeah, totally. going from there. Yeah, totally. Like, you know, um, I mean, I think a couple of semesters ago, I don't know how, how hard it was, like how hard we went on it, but it was like, let's at least for the first little bit, let's, let's make cook something for someone else in the class. Like just, like do a little bit of like a, like a little gift thing, you know? Yeah. Um, or, or we do like collaborative, tons of collaborative writing exercises, mm-hmm. um, like tons. And so that people really have to hang out and make things together in a, mm-hmm. in a very serious way. Um, there's kind of the, the premise of the gift is always part of the class that we're kind of trying to give each other stuff, you know, mm-hmm. and receive stuff too, which is really important. You know, at our place, like we have a little a garden plot, you know, a little MFA garden plot in town. And so that'll go on and off. Like people were sort of more or less sort of participate in that. But it's just like a thing that we get to kind of hang out. Maybe we'll talk about poems or stories yeah. or whatever. Maybe we won't. But at least it's something to care for in a certain kind of loose collaborative way that doesn't, you know, no one's going to, no one's going to get a reward or no, you'll get, you'll get like some peppers maybe, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it sounds like too, that that kind of environment has the potential to take some pressure off of you as a writer. I mean, like, like one thing that I struggle with in the MFA is that the art started to be commodified and spoken of in like capitalist terms. So it was all about being like productive and selling your work. And for me, like that led to like a focus on, writing work that could get published, which in yeah. some ways like made some of my stories better, but in other ways took some of the joy out of the process. Yeah. And I've found that there's often like a direct correlation with the amount of joy I have in writing something and how good it actually ends up being at the end. Oh, right. Yeah, sure. So meaning the like, more joy, the more joy, the better you like, the more you like the it. more fun I'm having yeah. writing the piece, the better it ends up being the more surprising it ends up being the more, the Me less too. controlled it feels. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so how important is that, do you think, to protect that kind of sense of joy and, and fun in the writing process? Like so important, you know, because one of the things is that like play, I feel like the word play is a yeah. good thing, you know. And and I also want to say like when you were saying that, I think I was thinking, yeah, that's absolutely right. Like the funness and, and also fun and labor are not necessarily separate, right? you know, so right. you can be having fun and work in your fucking ass off you know you yeah. can be just like grinding and can be so fun because you're like what the hell is going to happen or like god <laughs> yeah, this right. just um and that that feels really important to me but this sense of like how do you make play a kind of like deeply uh like foundational to the experience of of i don't know the student or the writer or whatever i mean one thing that you can do is just like again is to not grade people just eliminate yeah. the grade as even a thing because then it's like, okay, so now we can actually do something. Yeah. And I feel like, um, I mean, one of the things that we do in our classes, you know, the classes that I quote unquote lead, yeah. um, it's so much experiment. There's so much mm-hmm. experimentation that despite how good we write or how controlled we are, how much we have a voice or all these things, we're going to necessarily have to sort of like step outside of that or jostle that or loosen that up or something. We're going to have to do shit we do not know how to do, mm. which me, which I think one of the things like that one of the troubles or the struggles with being an MFA program is that really in a way you're trying to show off what you know how to do. 
Yeah. You're trying to demonstrate. You're trying to gain mastery and then demonstrate that mastery and have that mastery rewarded, you know, right. or affirmed. Yep. And in a way, like, you know, it, it kind of like the thing that I was just reading, the essay that I read, it, it's sort of mastery is, it can be kind of interesting, but there's something more interesting about, I don't know, to me about like, the kind of residing with confusion or something, mm. you know, or like, or, or being witness to one's attempt, you know, that, and, and I realized that I was for a long time wanting to like, even my relationship to like the built thing. And like, you know, the, it, like if you were to talk to, to me about magic, I would have been like, no, <laughs> you know, it's not magic, it's muscle, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and um, I think there's something really, moving and lovely and honest about like this other thing, which is like not knowing what you're doing, you know, mm. trying to like meet what you know how to do with what you don't know how to do or something, you know, it's funny, even as I hear myself talk about it, I'm kind of refreshed because I'm like, I don't quite know how to talk about it. Yeah. 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 You know, it's a difficult thing to like, yeah, totally understand and articulate. But as you're talking, I'm like the workshop, I'm not sure that, that is set up to like achieve it. I don't know how to achieve it, but the workshop itself is like, you know, you have these deadlines, you, your, your mentors and your peers are going to read it and they're going to critique it in front of you. And like that creates a pressure to like, quote unquote, get it right. Right. To, to to write something that like people are going to praise. Right. So, so, so you can prove to yourself that you belong there. Right. That's a big part of it too. I think. I think the two things, like, and I'm not sure if this is right, but I think like two of the most important things in my experience during workshop times when I was both a student and a teacher would be that people liked what I submitted and that, um, and if they didn't like it, that they told me how to fix it. Mm, right. It wasn't like something like, it, 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 there was nothing about confusion or there was nothing about wonder, I should say. Yeah. There was nothing about wonder. Like there was not actually... Wonder didn't really have a place in that discussion, in that conversation. It was really about kind of locking things down, you know, or the ability to lock things down. And uh, yeah, it's not what I'm interested in. You and I met last spring at the Unbound Book Festival in Columbia, Missouri. And one of the things you talked about there was this idea that if you're not failing, you're not practicing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, which I think is great. I mean, I think that like failing is, a, you know, it's integral to learning, right? Totally. It's integral to, to figuring out who you are as a writer and, and to get to that point where you can write something you're really proud of. You got to fail to get there, right? Oh, yeah. You got to not know what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. You got to not know what you're doing. And then every once in a while when you don't know what you're doing, you're like, ooh, what was that? that that's something. Never yeah. would have made that if I was trying to be just right, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's sort of the thing. And even like the word failure is, is a, it's an interesting word because it changes a little bit the idea of failure when it's like, no, you're just like practicing. You're practicing beyond what you know how to do. You're practicing outside of what you know how to do. I was, I was just, um, for your listeners, I was making <laughs> hand movements that implied dribbling a bas- basketball very fast. <laughs> and we always used to be like, uh, I coached for a lot of years. We'd be like, do, do it fast enough that you mess up. Just go yeah. dribble hard enough and dribble fast enough and do it. And if you're not doing it that fast, you're just going to be kind of doing what you know how to do. And it is a little bit the same thing. It's like, well, just do what you don't know how to do. See what happens. You know, 
you're going to be doing what you know how to do, like we always are. But what if you do something like, you know, what if you make it a play, you know, make it a play that goes in reverse and you have some kind of like <laughs> soundtrack to it. What's going to happen? Yeah, it goes back to the idea of destabilizing. We talk about yeah. destabilizing the classroom. Sometimes I think yeah. we have to find ways to destabilize like our writing process. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you know the writer, uh, um, Linda Berry? Do you know that writer? I don't. She's really neat. She's a, she's, she's really like graphic novels and, um, but she has all of these weird, like a drawer, you know, weird artistic exercises, writerly exercises too, that are, they're so great. And for like writers, they, they're kind of weird. They're weird enough that they are kind of destabilizing. Mm. And I feel like there are enough, like, there are kind of like ways to do that. Like even like if you bring like theater exercises into a writing classroom or dance exercises, or, or if you were to bring, probably if you were to bring like writing exercises into a dance classroom or whatever, there's a lot of, a lot of ways to just kind of be like, okay, well, we know how to know a thing this way. Well, let's see if we can know a thing like this way. And maybe in the process, know each other a little better too, and right? The, man, and that's the thing. To me, that's the thing. Like th- at this point, the classroom to me is about, you know, caring about each other. Yeah. And, and, and that's a sort of a longer thing, but like caring about each other and something like learning how to like make metaphors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> well, I could uh, do this all day, but um, I've already had you here for an hour. So I'm going to give you <laughs> the last question that I ask all the faculty members when they come on, awesome. which is having worked with numerous students over the years, what, in your opinion, makes someone a successful MFA student? And what pitfalls should our listeners try to avoid? Oh, uh, yeah. It comes back, I think, like to the, what we've been talking about the whole time. Like, again, like quote, you put quote, quotes around that successful word or whatever. Um, I think like a kind of curiosity, like a fundamental and ongoing curiosity in the midst of all the pressures to like, you know, the material pressures to be like published, so you, you know, pay bills and get jobs and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, but in the midst of that, it seems like, folks who maintain a kind of deep curiosity about their work seem pretty happy, you know, seem pretty happy, seem like they might keep writing for a long time or doing shit that they love anyway, you know? And what was the the second part? Pitfalls that our listeners should avoid. Well, here's the thing. And I don't know if this is, um, this is the thing I've been finding myself saying a couple of times. One is like something like not believing no, the, the pitfall would be this. Believing what editors say is true. <laughs> you know, it's a, like... That idea of truth, right? That idea of like yeah. what is true when it comes yeah. to art. That's yes. a big question, yes. right? Yes. I do often hear young writers, and not real young writers, sort of have like a relationship to their self-esteem, a relationship to their work based on whether or not things get accepted for publication. Mm. Despite the fact that so often the people who who are having these feelings have been on editorial boards or whatever and know that they cannot like a thing just like any of us because they didn't eat that day. Yeah, right. You know, <laughs> or like, or they just have taste that's different than, and that does feel like a thing just sort of generally. And I do feel like kind of overlaps with the rest of this sort of the potential for experimentation or the potential for like practicing beyond what one knows how to do and the um, kind of 
you know, a kind of beautiful lostness. That's that whole thing of like appealing, especially if you don't know that you're appealing, but, but the whole thing of like believing, really having a belief that with the, with the editor or with the reviewer or what the whatever, who, none of whom love you say about your work, you know, is necessarily true. Not that it's not. It very well might be, you know, you know, of course you can read a review that's like terrible. That could be an accurate review. And you read, you read a review that's beautiful. That's an inaccurate review and vice versa. Um, But I feel like there's a kind of stock, there's a, a practice in not putting too much stock in what people say about our work who, who are not the people who love us and value deeply not only our work, but our, our souls, you know? And which is a long way maybe of saying like, yeah, we just need uh, to uh, have people around us who care about our souls. I think that sounds like a great idea. Uh, <laughs> man, this was awesome. This was so Thank awesome. You. Thank you so much, man, for taking the time. My really pleasure. appreciate you coming by and chatting with me. Um, it means a lot to me. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's great talking to you. Thank you for your work.